0: and fourth head of doctrine to uh, Article 10. You'll find that on page uh, 272 in the the, uh, Book of Forms and Prayers, and 908 if you're looking at the Trinity Psalter hymnal. So Article 10 and 11 having to do with conversion as the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. The fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains, no, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity he chose his own in Christ, so within time he effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him, who called them out of darkness into this marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in His chosen ones, or works true conversion in them, He not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly, and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit, so that they may rightfully, rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but... By the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will, so that like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. And then if you'll turn in the Word of God to the Gospel according to John chapter 6, I want to pick up the reading at verse 25 and read to the end of 51. You'll find that on page 1135 in your pew Bible. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. Do I need to get the other one? Sean, where are you? There is a new system on order. A few more months, God willing. Do I just keep going? Thank you. So John 6, beginning verse 25. Excuse me. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life is my flesh. Thus far the reading of God's Word. I'm sure that you have heard of situations where two members of the same family, you could even imagine two twins both being raised in the church, both hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but only one of them actually believing the gospel and living for the glory of God. And you look at these two men, and you wonder what the difference is. Is one perhaps more clever than the other, more able to grasp spiritual things? Or or is it possible that the one was distracted by other concerns of the world, so wasn't able to focus his mind as fully on what he was listening to? Why is it that one believes and the other doesn't believe, though in many respects they are the same? Well, you might spend all your time thinking, about the differences that exist within the individual themselves. One being more clever, the other being more careful, or more sensitive, or more emotional. But you could search all day and you would never find the answer because the reason that one person believes and another does not believe is not because of the individual himself. It's because of God. Or think of this illustration A young man, again, growing up in a Christian home, hearing the gospel regularly, being under the ministry of the Word every Lord's Day, and yet never putting his trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus, never reading the Scriptures, never praying, except perhaps in times when he got into a bit of trouble and made a bargain with God, if you get me out of this mess, then I will read and I will pray carefully. But that would only last until the trouble passed. When the trouble passed, so did his religious devotion to God. And then, at 18, he goes off to university and he thinks, now's the time for me to get serious about this Christianity. I need to understand who God is. I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so while at university, he reads the Bible carefully. He prays regularly tries to put off some serious sins in his life, and then have, if he has done that, he thinks, then he can come to Christ. And then, all of a sudden, one day, he realizes that he has been going about things completely incorrectly. He was thinking that he needed to improve himself first, and, and then come to Jesus Christ. And then it dawned on him that He actually needed to come to the Lord Jesus as he was, as we sang before the service, just as I am without one plea. Come as you are, poor, wretched, weak, and blind. And so that's what he did. He saw the Lord Jesus as the Savior and went to the Lord Jesus and called out for mercy and trusted in the Lord Jesus for his salvation. Now here's the question. Why didn't he do that years earlier? Is it because he didn't know the gospel? No, that wouldn't be entirely true because he had grown up under the gospel. And if you had asked this man, do you need to clean yourself up before you come to Christ, he would have told you in in no uncertain terms. Of course not. That's legalism. That's moralism. You come as you are because Christ invites all sinners. So what was the reason for the change? Was it that he matured? Was it that he got smarter? No. Again, you're looking for the reason in the individual himself instead of looking for the reason in God alone. That's the truth that the writers of the Canons of Dort wanted to maintain, that in salvation, it doesn't depend upon the will of man. It doesn't depend on the wisdom or ingenuity or abilities of any person. The reason one person is a believer and the other is not is because the one person has been blessed by the sovereign grace of God from all eternity, worked into his or her life in time, and the other has not. In fact, what our forefathers were simply doing was confessing the truths that our Lord Jesus expresses here in John's Gospel. You might know the story. The Lord Jesus had just done a wonderful miracle. There were 5,000 men, assuming there were also women and children in the crowd, and with five loaves and two fish, he was able to feed them all. And not just paltry sums that would just tie them over until they could get a real meal. No, he fed them so well that when they gathered up the fragments, they filled 12 baskets. It was a wonderful provision of the Lord Jesus, an expression of his kindness, his compassion for weak human frailty or frail humanity as he feeds them to feed their physical body. And then in our passage, we see him pick up on that theme of food. The Jews talk to him about a sign, saying Moses gave a sign in the wilderness when he fed the people with manna every day. And Jesus says it wasn't wasn't Moses who fed you with manna, it was God who fed you from heaven with manna. And he fed you to feed your physical bodies. And I'm here to tell you today that there is someone here who can feed your souls, who can feed you spiritually, someone who has come from heaven as well. And, of course, the Lord Jesus is pointing to himself. He is the bread of God. He says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, again referring to himself as the one who has come from heaven to earth, the word of God who was with God and who was God in the beginning. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He's the one who came down from heaven. Verse 38, he speaks about, for I have come down from heaven. Again in verses 41 and 42, the Jews grumbled because Jesus had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, how can this be that he says, I have come down from heaven? But he has come down from heaven to earth in order to be the food for human souls so that they will not die but live forever. For the bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the spiritual food for our souls. But it isn't just in his coming down that humans are filled with Jesus. It is when Jesus comes down and they come to Jesus. This is what he says, for instance, in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He speaks again in verse 37 about All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So this is Jesus' point. It's not simply enough that he should come from heaven to earth, that he should give his life on the cross. That would avail no one unless God brought people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to use the other language that he uses, to believe in him, to trust in him as the only one who can feed their hungry souls. To, to be the one whom they eat, as Jesus says later, in, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So Jesus comes down from heaven. But if you want to participate in the blessing of his coming down, then you must come down to Jesus. You must embrace Him. You must take Him as your Savior, your Redeemer, your Lord, the one who can feed you so that you will live forever. But here's the situation that Jesus notices. He says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. How's that possible? Here's Jesus in front of them, not only speaking about the bread of life, but telling them that he is the bread of life. And he says, you have seen me. You've seen the bread that has come from heaven. And yet you do not believe. It gets even worse. In verse 41, the Jews, they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom we know? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They grumble about the Lord Jesus because they aren't able to grasp what he's saying, and they think the problem lies with him. In fact, we read later at the end of the chapter, because of the difficult things that Jesus was saying, many, verse 66, of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They did not believe in him, They did not understand him, and therefore they did not follow him. They were done with Jesus. He might be who he says he was, but there was no way that they were going to come to Jesus so that they might have life. Now, why is that? You would think it'd be the most natural thing in all the world for them to believe in Jesus. It's not just that he said things, but he He did things. He did miracles. He demonstrated his ministry before their eyes. He fed them. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. You would think it would it would make all the sense in the world for them to believe in the Lord Jesus. And yet they didn't. They refused to believe. Why is that? What's the reason? Was it more education they needed? Was it a longer exposure to Jesus that they needed? Did they need better friends to surround them, to encourage them? Well, that's not what our Lord says. He says here that it's actually impossible for them to believe, to come to Jesus. Just look at what he says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see what Jesus is saying? There's an impossibility, not a complete and thorough impossibility, but in the human person themselves, there's an impossibility. They cannot come to Jesus. Now, why is that? Why is there this impossibility of having life in Jesus' name? Well, it's not because there's a limitation on the offer. Some of you children might, I don't know if they still do this. I remember when I was a young boy, we had puffed wheat, and in the puffed wheat package, you could send something away and get a or I think that's how it worked. But it didn't work in every province. It was limited to all the provinces, or all the provinces could participate except Quebec, for instance. And so perhaps there's an impossibility for people to have life because Because God has put a limitation on the offer, that not all, but only some, could have life in Jesus' name. No, that's not it at all. In fact, Jesus himself says that he has come down from heaven to give life to the world, and that if someone comes to him, whoever comes to him, he will never cast them out. There's, There's no limits on the offer of salvation. Whoever wills may come and have life in Jesus'. Well, maybe there's a, a limitation on the effectiveness of the death of Christ. Maybe the, the first 1,000 to come to Jesus can have life in His name, and then after that, His power wanes and fades away. No, no, all who come to the Lord Jesus, He says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. There's no limitations on the power and efficacy of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever comes will have life in his name. There's no doubt about that at all. And all may come. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the depths of your sin, the vastness of your depravity. It doesn't matter what your ethnic group is. It doesn't matter at all. All may come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He he opens the offer freely for all, and all who come will have life in his name. So then why does he say no one can come? Well, what Jesus is highlighting there is the spiritual deadness of humanity apart from the work of God. He doesn't say no one can come. He says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. So what he's saying is that the humanity, unaided by God, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, coming face to face with Jesus Christ is in and of themselves unable to come. They cannot do so. And the reason for that is because of the effects of sin in the human heart. Remember how the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 describes it so poignantly, talking about these Ephesian Christians before they were Christians when they were still without God and without hope in the world. He says, this is what was true of you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of, the dis- of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's human picture. That's a picture of humanity outside of the grace of God, spiritually dead, unable to d- well as able to do anything for their spiritual life, as a dead person is able to do anything for his physical life. They're completely oblivious to spiritual things. They cannot move. They cannot take a thought. They cannot think a thought. They cannot make a move. They cannot take a step. They're absolutely, thoroughly dead. Sin has ruined us. It has killed us. It has destroyed us. So that in ourselves we cannot come to the Lord Jesus that we might have life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how we cannot come to Christ because we don't understand Christ. We don't understand the, the gospel. It's, it's foreign to us. He says there in verse 12, now we have Receive, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, because the natural person, the one without the Spirit of God, the sinner, the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. That's how desperate we are outside of God's grace. The gospel can be presented to us in its clearest and simplest way. And we will not get it. We won't understand it. We won't grasp it. Because we are spiritually dead. We're natural people, ignorant of spiritual things. Or take what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. He says there, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the person who is not born again, who comes into this world as a sinner, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. So the problem with humanity is not just that they don't want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that, just, that they're just enamored with other things. They don't see the, the wonder and the, the glory and the, the beauty of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's not just that they don't want the Lord Jesus. It's that they're unable to want the Lord Jesus. They're spiritually dead. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They're not just unwilling but they're unable. That's why people don't come. That's why people who are brought up in the church don't come to the Lord Jesus. It's because the human heart, devoid of grace, is at enmity with God, is unwilling to come, and is unable to come. So the impossibility lies only within Humanity, because Jesus goes on to say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And so, there's this impossibility within humanity, it's beyond our capabilities. We cannot believe. We cannot even wish to believe in the Lord Jesus because of the deadness of the human heart. But when God begins a work, or when God enters the scene, things change. I mean, this is, of course, because of what God has done in eternity past. For instance, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And there's a reference, of course, to what the Father did from before the foundation of the world where he chose out of humanity a a set number of individuals, and he gave them to the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord Jesus would die for them and reconcile them to God by his own death on the cross. Well, those whom the Father has given to the Son, those will come to Jesus. That's a guarantee. They will come to Jesus because the Father has chosen them so that they would come to Jesus. And thus, those whom the Father has chosen are those whom the Father draws to Jesus, those whom the Father teaches about Jesus. So humans, unaided by the grace of God, cannot come to Jesus. But when God in His mighty grace and in His sovereign power begins to work, not only can they come to the Lord Jesus... They will come to the Lord Jesus. So how does the Father draw sinners to Christ? How does he teach them spiritual things? Well, he does it by the preaching of the Word, in part. Because it is through the preaching of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 10, through the preaching of the gospel that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So that where the gospel is not preached, we... Ought not to expect that there will be anyone coming to the Lord Jesus. Or to put it another way, when God wants people to come to the Lord Jesus, He ensures that His gospel is preached to them, that they hear the glad tidings of great joy that is for all people. But that's not enough, because remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, the The spiritual things are are not discernible by those who do not have the Spirit of God. And so God not only has the gospel preached to those who are going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but He also works in them by His Holy Spirit to raise them from their spiritual death and to give them spiritual life. Jesus says this later on in the chapter. We didn't read this, but he says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That is the way that you're born will not enable you to come to Christ. The flesh is no help at all, but the Spirit He, when he begins to work in your life, he is the one who gives life. And then Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so the Father draws sinners to Christ by preaching the gospel to them and then giving them the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit works in their hearts and lives and transforms them from the inside out. Ezekiel says it this way that the Spirit takes out the heart of flesh that is impervious uh, to the things of God, that resists God's work. He takes that heart of stone rather out and, and then replaces it with a heart of flesh that is malleable and supple. That's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God opens eyes so that. They see the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so they, they might have heard about the Jesus all their lives, and then, and then the Spirit of God opens their eyes, and they see Him in a new way. They, they never realized how grand and glorious He was. The Holy Spirit opens their ears. So again, they've heard the preaching of the Word, but it didn't move them. It didn't matter. It didn't didn't change them at all. And And then the Holy Spirit works and their ears are open and they hear the distinct voice of their Good Shepherd calling them to follow Him. The Spirit of God works in the hearts of believers, changes them, takes their hostility and replaces it with love for God takes out their ignorance and replaces it with knowledge. The Holy Spirit regenerates, brings people out of spiritual death into spiritual life so that those in whom the Spirit works are born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. They are born from above. And this is God's sovereign work. You can't compel God to do it. You can't force God to do it in someone else's life. In fact, Jesus says not only is it a sovereign work, it's a mysterious work. We don't know how it happens. The wind blows where it does. Why is it that a person can live in the church for for 20 years ignorant of the things of God and then all of a sudden there's this radical change and he gets it for the first time in his life? What is the reason for that? Well, there's no reason in us That's God's sovereign timing. He takes the initiative. He does the work when He wishes to do the work of renovation and regeneration and and giving people new life. And when He does that, well, then people come to the Lord Jesus. It's sometimes thought, uh, I, I think it's because of this jealousy to guard the sovereignty of God. It's sometimes thought that that humans are completely passive in their salvation, that God does it all, all to him I owe. And so they would say that uh, language like I have decided to follow Jesus is just inappropriate. That's Arminian to think of that. You don't decide anything. No, that's not true. We do decide to follow Jesus. But we only decide to follow Jesus because God has done a prior work in our lives of bringing us to new life so that we discern who the Lord Jesus is and and recognize him as the only one who can save us from our sins. And then we do follow him. We do come to the Lord Jesus. We do repent of our sins. God doesn't repent for us. God doesn't believe for us. He doesn't follow Jesus for us. He doesn't make us or or, or confess our sins for us. No, that's what we do. But we do it because we're animated by the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, we would not do it. Of course not. We would insist on our own righteousness. We would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. We would despise him. We would turn from him, not turn to him. But once the Spirit of God works in our hearts, we do believe. We do trust, we do rest, we do embrace, we do take the Lord Jesus, we do come to the Lord Jesus so that we might have life in his name. We do eat the Lord Jesus because he's the bread of heaven and whoever eats of this bread will live forever. So there's a bit of a conundrum here in theology. We uh, must come to the Lord Jesus so that we might have life in His name, but we can't come to the Lord Jesus so that we might have life in His name because of our spiritual deadness. It's for this reason that, uh, that some Christians think that uh, sin hasn't completely wrecked us. It has ruined us for sure. But, but God has left a little bit of light, enough light within us. Everyone has this light. Enough light within us so that we can at least take the initial step to coming to faith in Jesus Christ so that uh, we're not completely dead in our trespasses and sins. There's, there's still a little bit of life left within us. And the reasoning is this, if God commands us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and tells us that we must come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, then we must have the ability to do so or He wouldn't tell us to. Well, No, that's not entirely true. He can tell us. He tells us lots of things to do that we we don't have the ability to do. He tells us to be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. And none of us is able to do that because because we are sinners and have been tainted. Even those who have been reborn by the Spirit of God are unable to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. God tells us to do things all the time that we cannot do in our own strength. And this is one of them come to the Lord Jesus. He says. And then he says, No one can come to the Lord Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here's the question that I want you to think through. Should we tell people? Well, we should tell people that they must come to the Lord Jesus so that they might have life in his name. But should we tell them that they cannot come to the Lord Jesus? That they are spiritually dead? that the, the things of God are spiritually discerned and that they're unable to understand the gospel so as to believe? Or should we hide that truth from them and let them figure it out themselves later on after they have come so that then they realize, ah, yes, it must have been all of God because it wasn't of me. Well, in our climate Today, in our self-help world in which we live, where you're always being told that you can do it, you can do whatever you want, you have it within you, change depends completely on you, we might be tempted to tell them that uh, yeah, you can come to Christ. It's just a matter of your decision. And you can make it at any time. And I'm, I'm telling you to make it now Satan has voted for you and God has voted for you and you have it within your own power to cast the deciding vote, so, so do it. But the preachers of the, of the Reformation would never have said that. They would tell the people, they would insist on the absolute necessity of repentance of sins, of believing in the Lord Jesus, of trusting in Him for their salvation. And they would go on to say, but you don't have it within your power to do it. Benjamin Palmer, he was a southern Presbyterian minister, ministered in, in, uh, in uh, Columbia, South Carolina for a number of years. He, he tells a story of a, a young man coming into a study one day. And uh, this young man says, you ministers are contradictory. You say and unsay. You say this, and then you say the opposite without any attempt to be consistent whatsoever. Palmer says, what are you talking about? And this young man says, well, yesterday in the sermon you said that we must come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we are utterly unable and unwilling to come to the Lord Jesus that we, must, that we might be saved. So there's a contradiction, and and he says, you ministers, you you do this without any embarrassment at all. You don't recognize that you're contradicting yourself, telling us in one second to come, and then turning around and telling us that we can't come, and that if we don't come, this is it, and if we don't come, we'll be under the judgment of God. What are are you saying? You're just confusing us. And then Palmer said to the young man, he knew the young man, he said, "Uh, well, okay, there's no sense us quarreling about it. It's either you can come or you can't come. And if you can come, well then, I just urge you to go ahead and come to Christ that you might be saved. And he said he heard a bit of choking. And the young man said, I've been trying for three days to come to the Lord Jesus, and I just cannot make myself come. And Palmer said to him, Now that's a different matter. Why don't we go to the one who can actually change you so that you can come? And they knelt together in the study and prayed, cried out to the Father, the only one who can draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can change us. And Palmer goes on to say that within a few days, this young man had come faith in Jesus Christ. And what had happened was, is that he had recognized in himself his absolute inability to come. And so he cried out to God for mercy. Will you not draw me, change me, and regenerate me? I don't know if you've ever been with someone, perhaps any evangelistic situation. You've shared with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've told them what they needed to do, and you said to them, maybe you've said this to them, you know, I I can't do this for you. It's something you have to do yourself. I I cannot believe for you. As as much as you wish you could, because you know the blessing that would be His if only you could. He could believe, and you say, I wish I could do this for you, but I, I can't do it for you. And then at times I've gone on and said, you know what the striking thing is, my friend? You can't even do it for you. But here's the good news. God can do it for you. So let's go to God in prayer. So I don't know where you are this evening. Perhaps you have never come to Jesus Christ. You've never given it a thought. You thought perhaps that you you had, because after all, you grew up in the church. And I'm saying to you this evening, you must come. If you do not come, you will not have life. And I say also with equal authority, you cannot come. You don't have it within you. Sin has so ruined you and destroyed you that you're unable to come. You're hostile. You can't even change your desire to come. But God can. So cry out to Him for mercy. Cry out to him to change you, to teach you, so that you learn of him, so that you embrace the Lord Jesus for your salvation. And if God has done this work of grace, this miraculous work of regeneration and has given you new life so that you see the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is in all of his glory and wonder, well, no kudos to you. Don't congratulate yourself. But worship the one who has done this for you. Bow down before the one who has drawn you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light and declare his praises because salvation really is all of God so that all glory goes to him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we are solemnized by your word this day, this morning, and again this evening. And yet we're encouraged by We're solemnized because we recognize what sin has done and its destructive power. But we're encouraged because we heard that where sin abounds, grace does all the much more abound. And so we bow before you in joyful worship, in humility, and in gladness that you have done a work of grace in our hearts that we could not do for ourselves. And so we praise you, our God. We worship you, we bless you. And we look forward to the day when we will gather with all the saints whose hearts you have by sovereign grace opened so that when they heard the word, they, like Lydia, believed in Jesus. So bless us, we pray. And we pray that you would use us to speak to others about their need of Christ and the willingness of Christ to save and the love of the Father for the world so that he gave his only begotten Son the bread from heaven that they might have life. So use us to tell others the good news of the gospel, salvation being all of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, sing together and respond.